The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. Thank you for listening and for watching wherever you get this program. Some of you are watching on Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook or YouTube live. Some of you are listening live on radio or stream. And some of you will be listening to this later when we're not live via podcast. Whichever way you get you get the show. We appreciate you tuning in. Well, today, instead of from the headlines to start it off, we have two guests joining us. One for the first half, one for the second. I count both of them friends. I'm really lucky to have such prestigious friends and certainly friends of the program as well. He hasn't been on in a long time. I've missed him, and I'll tell him about something in a sec. But first up, we have New York Times bestselling author Julian Zelizer. Julian's been among the pioneers in the revival of American political history. He is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University. He is the Malcolm Stephen Forbes recipient. He is a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. I don't think he's old enough to be class of 1941. And he's a CNN political analyst, a regular guest on NPR's Here and Now, which I just heard him the other day. He is an award-winning author and editor of 25 books. Talk about an overachiever, huh? Including his latest Myth America, historians take on the biggest lies and legends about our past. He co-edited it with Kevin Cruz. His website is julianzelizer.com, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R.com. And on Twitter, follow him at the same name and spelling, at Julian Zelizer. More than a a pleasure to have back on the program, Julian Zelizer, uh, our friend who's doing more and more and more, keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and I'm so proud of you. And uh, uh, you know, I've seen you on CNN and I've been following everything you're doing on Facebook and with the kids in Princeton and all that. I know that you uh, had a move recently. Uh, but Julian, I was listening to NPR as I often do. And I heard you on here and now. And I heard some questions um, about what we are going to talk about. And that is our current president, President Joe Biden, his announcement that he's going to run again and all things uh, surrounding that and some other stuff we'll get in uh, in this half hour as well. So welcome and welcome back. I've missed you so much. It's great to be back with you. I always love being on the show. And we love having you. I said to Mark, I was just as a Julian NPR the other day. Why is he doing our show? I'm like, is he too big for us now? You know, 25 bucks, you know, and, you know, uh, but anyway, and congrats. I'm so, uh, my, my kids are in, in high school and uh, I my daughter could probably go to Princeton not my son. I shouldn't say that on the air, but uh, um, I'm proud of your kids when I see the things you post. So Joe Biden finally announced, President Biden finally announced that, you know, he's running. And of course, we get a plethora of things coming out. Uh, First off, because, you know, you are a professor of history, your books are historical and political, and you know so much, you know, with politics and history, it is historical that he's going to be the oldest running uh, president, you know, how, how much do you think that will possibly or potentially weigh in on voters' minds? Because especially if Donald Trump ends up being the GOP nominee, 
for some people, I saw a bumper sticker on the way here that said from 2020, um, any adult. (laughs) And some people, and I have Republican friends that voted for Trump the first time around, and they kind of like, they don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to that circus. Um, So let's first talk about um, his age, and then we'll get to some other things. Look, I think what we're seeing in polls is that it is something voters are thinking about. Uh, it's not going to be insignificant. It won't be unnoticed. It is historic uh, to have someone of the that's it's a bit of a test uh, in terms of where the electorate is, but it doesn't mean it will determine the election. Uh, just because uh, we have an older candidate, we'll have two older candidates most likely, um, voters might, uh, A, conclude that that will not inhibit him from being very effective in the next four years. B, they might be comfortable with the team around him, uh, which is what his opening ad is focused on in part uh, as a sense of comfort uh, that he will be helped as the next few years go by. And most important, the alternative uh, might be much less attractive. Uh, The risks of having someone older might be not as worrying as the risks of having the turbulence of the Trump presidency return. Yeah, and if if it ends up being DeSantis, who's younger, it may not be a race between young and old, but between experience and lack of experience, especially on a a national stage, a national level. Uh, When we uh, talk about, I want to talk about those around him in a minute, but let's talk about some polls. I mean, the polls are pretty bad for Joe Biden, but you know, he's fared better than most presidents with midterm election and, and you know, holding on to seats and not losing seats. Are we in a very different place uh, with regard to the polls, especially since the 2016 election when they weren't accurate? Yeah, we are. I mean, well, it's the uh, question of accuracy. It's the question of how polls can change. We're a long way from, from the election. But it's also something uh, his former chief of staff, Ron Klain, talked about. We're in an era where presidents just aren't going to have very strong approval ratings. It's difficult given how polarized the electorate is. Uh, and so you're not looking for someone with, you know, 60, 70 percent approval ratings. You're just seeing if they can squeak up high enough, uh, close to 50 percent if possible, but maybe even under and still win. Uh, so I, I think he's where a lot of presidents have been, including the former president, where other presidents will be in futures. And you have to just win uh, with narrow support uh, and not necessarily being loved by the whole electorate, but uh, accepted and still uh, desired is the best option. Even though the whole electorate would be our 50 states and people will say this is a 50 state race, in reality, nowadays it isn't. It, it comes down to four or five states at the end of the day, right? I mean, you know, that, and, and that's where we're going to see most of the money and most of the campaigning uh, on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, I mean, we haven't had a landslide election really since 1984 uh, when Ronald Reagan defeated Walter Mondale. Most elections now, presidential elections, are determined by a handful of states. Much of the rest of the map stays the same election after election. So the real key won't be national approval ratings. What we're really going to follow is what are his uh, poll numbers as this unfolds in these key states, and can he get them high enough uh, to turn out Democratic votes, maybe swing some moderate voters. And the Electoral College right now looks pretty good for the Democrats, especially yes. what's happened in Georgia. Um, the, the Republicans are going to have a longer haul to try to you know, turn enough votes. Let's talk about the people around him. One big name around him, Ron Klain, was talking about her with regard to um, her gender and her race, and that's the Vice President Kamala Harris. 
very low, lower than the president approval ratings. Um, some people talk about, look, you know, he's going to be the oldest guy. What if he doesn't make it through four years? She'll become president. She's got low numbers. I know in back rooms there are Democrats, you know, on my side of the aisle that are worried about this. Certainly Republicans want to emphasize this. But, you know, it reminds me of um, Prince Harry wrote a book called Spare. And the reason I say that is I think often vice presidents are looked at as the spare, right? And um, also, I don't, there are many people out there who don't even know who the vice president is, or certainly, you know, historically, or what a vice president does, except wait around in case the president gets sick, you know, or dies. Uh, terrible to say, but, you know, in, you know, in reality, how, how much historically has a vice president's name, the second uh, name on the ticket mattered? And how much will this matter now? Um, because it is a woman, because it is a uh, a woman of color, and because she's got low approval ratings, and Joe Biden's the oldest guy running. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it, it's rarely an issue. Most people never know what the vice president is doing. It's fascinating to see all the attention people seem to have on her. Uh, I think a lot of things are going on. Part of it is the age question, but part of it I think is a little bit more probably about who she is. Um, so I do think uh, whether it's fair or not, whether this is more than usual, there will be, uh, you know, energy spent by the Biden campaign, even though in the end it's going to be about Biden, not about Vice President Harris, to mm -hmm. convince the public that at a minimum he's very smart, intelligent and capable of handling the presidency should it come to that. I don't think she needs to be another, you know, soaring rhetorical politician like a Barack Obama, uh, but I think they just have to me meet the case that stability will be achieved if necessary. In less than 60 seconds, this is a president who's going to be campaigning while president. This has certainly happened before. Is it me or are people making a big deal out of this? No, this happens all the time. Uh, the Rose Garden strategy is one way in which this works. You campaign by governing and show the country you can be president. Uh, but others, while they're governing, also go out on the campaign trail. This is literally um, what we see again and again. So there's nothing unusual about it. And there's nothing uh, that can't be achieved doing both at the same time. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back and we're going to talk about one of those potential GOP nominees, Ron DeSantis, and a guy called Mickey Mouse. We'll be back in a few minutes. I'm Leslie Marshall. Julian Zelizer is our guest, New York Times bestseller. He's written not one. Not 10, not 20, but 25 books. His latest is Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Lies and Legends About Our Past, co-edited with Kevin Cruz. His website, julianzelizer.com, and follow him on Twitter at the same, at Julian Zelizer. I'm Leslie Marshall, back with him, back with you, right after this. We are back. We being me, Leslie Marshall, and our guest, New York Times bestselling author Julian Zelizer. His latest book is called Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Lies and Legends About Our Past. He is uh, not only a uh, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, he's also a CNN political analyst, a regular guest on NPR's Here and Now, and author of not just this latest book, uh, but 24 prior to this. On his website, julianzelizer.com, you can find out more and 
Julianzeliz book, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R.com. And on Twitter, follow him at the same name and spelling, at Julian Zelizer. Julian, thank you for holding. Uh, welcome back. Let's talk about Ron DeSantis and DeSantis's war on, on Disney. You know, yesterday I was on Brett Baer's special report on Fox News Channel, and I was on a panel, and one of my colleagues uh, was talking about him, and I was talking about how he's dropping in the polls and he's less, you know, favorable. Uh, and in Florida, he was saying, you know, though that you know that's not the case. Um, but this war on Disney and this fight might have been a big mistake. Do you think it's a big mistake because nationally his numbers have gone down, and Donald Trump has taken up uh, those numbers that Don, uh, Ron DeSantis has lost thus far? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the governor is slowly eroding the very theme that he wanted to campaign on originally, which made him attractive to Republicans, that he was the most electable, uh, the leader with the greatest kind of executive vision who was able to build a coalition in Florida that was broader than the narrow Republican coalition we see nationally. Uh, But with Disney, he's A, taking a deep dive again into the culture wars. He's boxing himself into a very rightward position on issues such as sexuality and reproductive rights. Uh, which is part of what the whole Disney battle is about. I don't think that's going to serve him well. Um, And also, he's taking on a major corporation in his state, and that can go very poorly. And a lot of Republicans who are sympathetic to business uh, are not going to be comfortable with this kind of aggressive, hands-on government uh, decision-making. from Yeah, yeah, Chris Chris Christie said who's on uh, CNN with you as well, um, Chris Christie said that, you know, this, this is basically not conservative because you're attacking not just a private company, but in a sense, capitalism. Yeah. And it's a source of revenue in his state. So if this goes south, uh, Nikki Haley's already invited Disney to come to South Carolina. Uh, if this goes poorly, it will hurt him. Uh, and if there's any economic effect, that will not be a good sign of what he would do as president. No, I agree. And I think right now it's really hurt him in addition because, you know, in the headlines, you see him, you know, out of Florida when there's a massive flood, you see him in Israel and his numbers are going down. And I know he's getting money and he's getting support. And and South Florida has a very large Jewish community. That's not the majority of voters in the state. And I know a lot of people are saying in Florida, Governor, you need to be here. Yeah. You need to be home. You need to govern here in Florida, one. And two, um, you know, Disney is not one of those companies, you know, I don't care there are conservatives out there who may be totally in line when it comes to book banning and uh, don't say gay and all that stuff with Ron DeSantis, but they're still going to take their kids to say Mickey Mouse. I mean, Disney is something that is loved, you know, by people, regardless of their ideology for their kids and the kid, you know, the big kid in them or the little kid within that big kid. And like you pointed out, crucial source of revenue, um, uh, you know, for his state, it, it just this is just a, you know, a, a lose lose. And he has the opportunity to, to back off. Also, for Republicans that felt Donald Trump was too extreme, I think there are Republicans that are concerned about I know it's not don't say gay legislation, but it has been dubbed such uh, that uh, the books, uh, politics, attacking a private company. If that guy becomes president, we're going to have this on a federal level, on a national level. That is a concern among voters, even conservatives. Yeah, and he let's remember, a he he's not the front runner. Donald Trump is, so he's not uh, kind of doing all this from a position of power right now. And his polls are slipping, uh, so he can't afford to make himself a much narrower candidate as he is doing right now. 
uh, and he'll he'll lose. I mean, I think that's what he's doing to himself. It's remarkable to watch someone take on this iconic company that is so loved uh, in his own state and do it when he can't really afford uh, to take these kinds of hits politically. But he's deep into this right now. It's one of those moments you see in politics. It, it, I call it a quagmire. It's like he can't get himself out of it. Uh, and mm -hmm. people must think around him. This is a good idea, but uh, we'll see. So far, it's not showing it's a good idea. And it's taking up all the oxygen in the room, right? That and him not being out of state. And then, you know, the, the, these pieces of legislation that I think he thought were a win. Something else that's taking up a lot of oxygen is Donald Trump, as he normally does, and his attacks on Ron DeSantis. There are different schools of thought. Ron DeSantis should just keep on, you know, the straight and narrow. But more and more people are saying Ron DeSantis needs to fight back. Uh, when you look historically um, at uh, opponents and, and, and attacks, what would you advise Ron DeSantis to do regarding that? Well, he should if he can. I don't know if he can. I mean, you, you lose over time if someone as uh, kind of significant as the former president is systematically ripping you apart and basically defining your character to the public, which Trump is brilliant at doing. Uh, and then on top of it, DeSantis is playing into those characterizations. Uh, and if he doesn't say anything, this will sink in. And by the time he announces that he is going to run, if he does that, it's too late to undo that kind of damage, especially if you're not a nationally known figure, which he still isn't. Um, and so I think there's a high cost. The question is, can he really do that? I don't know if he can take on Donald Trump and that kind of back and forth. And many uh, very big Republicans learned in 2015 and 16, it's not so easy. You know, it's interesting because, you know, as a, not just talk shows, but a Democratic strategist, I, as a Democrat, was definitely more concerned about Ron DeSantis running against Joe Biden because I thought he's younger. Um, I thought, you know, he's he's got that big state that comes down to one of those four or five. For some reason, I don't know why Florida's been red for a while now. Right. And um, in in addition to that, he you know, he definitely is an all, you know, alternative. People don't look at him as a Trump. They, even though he's not, they look at him as more of a moderate or old school Reagan Republican, even though he's not. And there are many Republicans that want to get back, want to take their party back and bring their party back to that. Um, but now you talked about the Electoral College favoring Democrats. Donald Trump uh, being the GOP nominee would also favor Democrats because there's a lot of people within the Republican Party that I don't think will hold their nose again and vote for him twice. Yeah, and this is a tested uh, competition, meaning Biden defeated him already. So there's something to base this on. There's some kind of way to predict. I, I think he can still be a strong candidate. I mean, I, I think you shouldn't underestimate what he can do um, and you know how things might look now that Biden is someone four years into a presidency with a record as opposed to who he was in 2020. Um, but yes, I think a lot of Democrats are more excited to face Trump, and that might be a mistake, but they do feel that way um, than they are DeSantis. And now DeSantis is looking like Rick Perry, Jeb Bush, yeah. all the governors who are high flyers and just collapsed when right. national spotlight. Yes or no? Will, it, will Donald Trump, if he gets the nomination, be the first president to be president, lose after one term and come back and run again and be the nominee? Yeah, he could. Yeah. He could. I think he is going to get the nomination. I still am persuaded he is far ahead yeah. of the rest of the bunch.
I agree with you there. Julian, love having you. Thank you for being with us. Julian Zelizer, New York Times bestseller, um, also professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, CNN political analyst, regular guest on NPR's Here and Now. He is an award-winning author, 25 books, and his latest is Myth America, historians take on the biggest lies and legends about our past. We're going to post everything like his website, his Twitter handle, and more coming up. Thanks. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome to the second half of this hour and our second guest in this hour. And thank you for joining us, listening and watching wherever you get uh, the program. We appreciate you being with us. And I appreciate this one being with us. Now, this woman is actually married to uh, another orthopedic surgeon who is a friend of mine and my husband's. And he and I went to like rival high schools at different times. Um, and I just um, I came to uh, really like like her and adore her personally. And she wrote a book and she had the book out and I checked it out. And, you know, I, I interview a lot of authors and it was really good. It really, really was. I'm not just saying that. And uh, I love her personally. I like her work professionally. So when she wrote a second book, I said, Mark, we have got to get her on or get her back on. Right. Uh, Dina Gackman is our guest. She is a Pulitzer Center grantee. She's a frequent contributor to The New York Times, Box, Texas Monthly and more. She's a New York Times bestselling ghostwriter. And if I ever write a book, I got to hire her. And the author, I know I keep I keep talking to you. Right. I, I'm going to do it. Right. Keep pushing it down the road. And the author of Brokenomics, 50 Ways to Live the Dream on a Dime. Like I said, it was a great book. If you don't have it, check it out. And it's very, very helpful. Uh, as well as her latest book, just out this month, different than her first uh, book, uh, topic-wise. And we're going to discuss that book today. The title is So Sorry for Your Loss, How I Learned to Live with Grief and Other Grave Concerns. Now, Dina and I are friends. Uh, we both have lost loves, lost a parent and uh, have have grappled with grief. And it's not something a lot of people talk about, but the way she writes about it in this book, to me, it is so relatable. It is so personal, personal, it is so relatable. And it's something we all go through, whether it's a mother or a father, whether it's, you know, old age, dementia, a cancer, a car accident. Losing someone you love is so difficult, especially because, you know, we all, that, that Cliche grief comes in waves, which is so true. Uh, Dina lives near Austin, Texas, with her husband and her son. He's so adorable. And her website is dinagachmanwrites.com. That's D I N A G A C H M A N W R I T E S.com. On Twitter, please follow her there at Dina Gachman, D I N A G A C H M A N. Without further ado, the author of So Sorry for Your Loss How I Learned to Live with Grief and Other Grave Concerns. Dina, welcome, or I should say, welcome back. I think we had you on the show with the first book, too. Dina, um, question. You go from, hey, here's 50 ways to live the dream on a dime to I'm going to talk about, you know, things that are very emotional, yeah. very personal and uh, talking about living with grief and other grave concerns uh, as you talk about uh, in your book. So sorry for your loss. What made you make this jump? Was it because, you know, uh, was it because of the passing of a parent and someone that, you know, you loved so dearly? Because, uh, you know, you and I, you were, I don't think you were in Austin yet uh, at that time. No. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me on. And, um, you know, my first book was a while ago and it was pretty much straight humor, um, kind of humor about money. So it was very different. Um, and I remember with that book thinking like, I just want to entertain people. I just want to make them laugh. Um, and I never imagined I would write a book about grief, but you know, I'm, my mom died in 2018 from colon cancer. And then about two years later, my sister Jackie from alcoholism. And so 
I had, you know, grief obviously changed my life and, um, and I was just curious about it myself. It was something I was living with every day. And I think coming through the pandemic also, it's something that definitely touched all of us unless you were living under a rock. Um, so it, it's a very different kind of book. It still has some humor in it. Um, but with this book, it, it, you know, it's obviously not straight humor because it's about grief, but I just felt like, you know, with the loss of my mom, but then my sister so soon. Um, and also I didn't find a lot about losing a sibling to alcoholism out there. So I really wanted to write about that experience. Cause I think there's so many of us, yes. whether it's a sibling or a spouse or, you know, a parent, it's just not a ton out there. And so that was important to me to kind of look at that. So, so it wasn't something that I ever, you know, woke up and thought I'm going to write a grief book at the beginning of my career. It just happened because from life experience. Uh, so many questions. One, did you find it easier to write this book than the other because you are so personally connected to the subject? The other one was easier because I was just having a rip roaring time. <laughs> I was just writing humorous essays and, and laughing and, and it was fun. This one was much more difficult um, because it's personal, but I also weave in a lot of narrative reporting. So I interviewed a lot of people. So I interviewed psychologists, grief counselors, um, just regular folks who've had profound loss in their life because I wanted it to be that kind of hybrid. I didn't want it to just be my story. I feel like grief is it's universal and there's so many voices out there that I kind of wanted to make it feel um, a little bit more universal than just my story, although it's rooted in it. But this one was much more difficult, partly because of the reporting. I was, you know, day in and day or, or week in and week out, you know, having these very serious conversations. So like I would get to Friday and be like, okay, let's, you know, watch queer eyes, <laughs> you know, like yeah. just have fun. Um, and then it was very, it was hard, very emotional. So I, you know, a lot of crying, a lot of going on walks with my dog to kind of get through it. So what, what, in writing this book, between your experiences and, and writing this book and the research and the interviews that you conducted for the book, um, what did you learn about what it means to grieve? I learned a lot. I learned a lot just from talking to experts, but also from talking to other people. So I, you know, there's a chapter on parents who've lost children, which I was very scared to write about. I was scared to, um, I mean, you know, that sometimes it's hard to, to approach those really, really tough topics with people. And I learned so much from them. Um, one important thing that I learned is that your relationship with the person who's died doesn't end and it can actually evolve, which didn't make sense to me before, but now it makes sense to me that I, I still, obviously I'd rather have my mom and sister here, but I still have a relationship with them. I talk to them, you know, my sister's pictures on my desk. I feel like she kind of wrote the book with me as, as crazy as that sounds. So, and my mom, we have this bond where we watch Hollywood red, where we have this bond where we watch Hollywood red carpets. And so I do that every year still and think of her. So that was one thing I learned that the relationship can continue. Um, and then another thing I learned from one of the parents that I interviewed is um, when my sister died, I would I have three sisters, but I would get really tongue tied when people would say like, how many, how many siblings do you have? I didn't know what to say. You know, I'd say, uh, do I say three and one died? Cause you don't want to be that person at the party that, you know, says something and then, you know, the record scratches and everybody's depressed. So I really grappled with that. And one of the moms told me that when people say, how many kids do you have, which is a common question, she says, I have two, my ma my son who died and then my daughter. And, and I just thought that was very courageous and it, and it really helped me. So I learned a ton, but those are just, you know, kind of two of the things that, that stand out. I remember meeting somebody once and uh, that came up, how many children do you have? And she said, um, three, two here and one on heaven. 
yeah. or something like that. You know, yeah, there's a way to do it without being, you know, like you said, you know, that that person at the party. Uh, one of the things um, that I do love, uh, because I certainly have had loss, everyone has had uh, loss, and we forget that something that does touch all of us and connects all of us, right, worldwide. Um, and that the fact, and you just talked about it, is staying connected to those that we miss. And 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 you know, I mean, I I think it's a, I, I'm so glad that you have that in your book, um, because I think it's not just normal. I think it it's healthy. Um, do you think that, and can you talk about some other things that help with healing after such a loss? You talk about this in your book, but maybe share with those listening and watching some of that. I think one of the things is, um, you know, it's, I remember somebody said to me after my mom died, they said, you know, grief doesn't, you know, it's not going to go away. And I was so angry, you know, I was like, why would you say such a horrible thing to me? And then, and then I realized, okay, it doesn't go away. So I think acknowledging that and um and you know in the early days that's not the easiest thing to acknowledge but just understanding that it's not going to go away it's going to become part of your life and to learn how to maybe incorporate it into your life whether that's you know like for me you know watching the red carpet every year still or um talking to my mom and sister i think that's important and then another thing that is very helpful to me is just the connection i have found with other people like hearing other people's stories meeting somebody randomly and, and, you know, these things come up and just those connections can be very healing, not in a cheesy way, but just, they really can be. Um, and it's not misery love com- loves company. It's just, I, I, I get you, like our experiences may be different, but like, it's, it's a really kind of profound connection with people that you can form. Um, and that is very helpful. I would say that, that if you can, you know, instead of going inward, try and try and cultivate that. I think it could be helpful. Yeah, I think it's the reason Facebook groups have become so popular because you're you're like, I'm not alone in this. Yeah. Um, I love the fact that you touch upon in your book so many areas of of loss and so many things with loss, parenting after a loss, you know, as a parent and as a parent who's lost a child, you just want to shut down, Um, you know, uh, hospice care, you know, which not everybody thinks of. I mean, that, you know, that's very difficult and you're losing this person and then there's the final loss. Uh, It's more gradual. Uh, and losing loved ones to addiction, like your sister, whether it be alcohol or drugs, especially with the fentanyl crisis that we have, so much more. We're going to continue talking after this quick break with my friend and author, second book, and it's an awesome book. Um, whether you've lost somebody or not, maybe you're going to get it for somebody else. Pick up a copy. So sorry for your loss. How I Learned to Live with Grief and Other Great Concerns by Dina Gackman. She's my friend. Pulitzer Center grantee and frequent contributor to the New York Times Box, Texas Monthly, and more. We'll be back with her and you. We are back. Welcome or welcome back second half of the second hour of the program with our second guest in the program today, Dina Gackman, a Pulitzer Center grantee, frequent contributor to the New York Times, Vox, Texas Monthly, and more. New York Times bestselling ghostwriter, author of Brokenomics, 50 Ways to Live the Dream on a Dime. But it's her latest book we're talking about today, something I think everybody should get a copy of, whether for themselves or someone in their circle of friends or family. It's called So Sorry for Your Loss, How I Learned to Live with Grief and Other Grave Concerns. 
Dina's joining me today from Texas. Uh, she lives there outside of Austin with her hubby and son. Her website is dinagachmanwrites.com. That's D-I-N-A-G-A-C-H-M-A-N rights.com. And on Twitter, at Dina Gackman. Uh, Dina, thanks uh, for holding and, um, and, 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 and welcome back. You know, when my father died young, somebody said to me, welcome to the club you didn't want membership in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, you know, you, you mentioned like the grief club, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly membership to this has zero perks. Uh, but I do think reading a book like this, so sorry for your loss, can make it less painful because you know you're not alone. And even though, and it, you, you know, it was right what was taught to you. Some Somebody told me once, you know, like my Sunday, they said, the hole in your heart will never go away, but it will get smaller. Mm-hmm. And the farther away you get from that event, you know, like you will smile again, you will laugh again. And when you're in it, you know, you just don't, you know, you just don't believe that. Yeah. In, in, in interviewing people, regardless of how they lost a loved one, what, what would you find to be the common denominator? I mean, obviously, other than grief, you know, depression, mm-hmm. sadness, but, you know, what would you find to be, you know, one of more common denominators among people? Well, I think, I, you know, one thing I've learned is that everyone does it differently. So there is definitely not one way to do it. You know, you're not, there's no five stages. You're not going to go through a neat and tidy order of things. Um, so I think the commonality is that we all do it very differently and it hits us at different times. Um, but I do think that for people, you know, like I was saying before, I think that, that finding that connection is, seems to be very helpful for people. So whether it's a parent who started a soccer fund, um, you know, that that's something that they can do to connect with other people, you know, in their child's name or, you know, just a little, you know, create a plot in a garden or, you know, things like that, I think seem to be common among people who are sort of professionals call it integrating grief into your life. So rather than pushing it away, you know, trying to find ways to integrate it into your life, you know, so that it's, that it's, you know, not consuming you, but that you can sort of, still acknowledge it, I think is, is important. Yeah. To, to keep their memory alive. Right. My, my aunt, when she lost her husband, uh, cancer and fast, um, the, the, the family, we all pitched in and they used to sit near this place on the river and feed the ducks together. They go for a walk and go there. So they have a bench and it has his name on it, you know, or a plaque, you know, when, uh, when I've had loss in my life, you know, there's, individual therapy, right? There's bereavement therapy, individually there's groups. I didn't like that because it almost was like, oh, well, you lost your father, I lost my son. You know what I mean? People can one-up each other. I mean, people get angry, obviously. It is one of the five stages. But, you know, I didn't see a lot of books out there that helped to address various stages of of grief, other than, of course, you have Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on grief and, and grieving. Um, and I, I do feel we experience those stages, but there's different times. There can be months of a break in between in different order. C.S. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed. But your, your book is, is, is different, and I think it's the perfect gift for somebody who's grieving. Um, I, think it's a, I, I just think it's very, very helpful. I mean, you have your personal experiences in the book. Um, you have experts who give advice. You also have the humor. It's very different than Kubler-Ross and uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, books. Um, and um, if somebody's looking for a grief book, you know, I wish that this you had written this 
before I had you know, my grief, it would have been uh, helpful. Uh, but I'm not alone in, in this. Lauren Hoff, who is a New York Times bestselling author of Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing, said it's a monument to the work of remembering and a testament to the immutable love of family and the grief that forever changes us. She talks on and on about you, Publishers Weekly, talks about it being a poignant uh, personal exploration of grief. And, and I think that encapsulates it truly. Um, and how you put words to the uncomfortable realities of lost and deconstruct its social myths. And, and that I want to touch upon because why, when we all go through this, are we so afraid to talk about it? Do you think it's because we're all, even though we all know we're going to die, we're afraid to talk about death because that's the inevitable end for all of us? I think it's that. I think it's, um, you know, different cultures, I think, express and experience grief differently. But I think in the West, at least US, UK, um, we're very scared of those big emotions, I think, sometimes. And so it's the big emotions that come with grief that I think causes either the grieving person to kind of keep it quiet. You know, you don't want to cry at work. You don't want to cry on the street. It's, it's just not acceptable here. Um, and for the person who is not grieving, but who maybe is scared to trigger the person who's grieving or, you know, uncomfortable with those big emotions because you don't know what to do. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, too, is I wanted it to be for people who have loss in their life, but also for people who maybe don't know what to say or feel right. very intimidated by grief, because I was one of those people before, you know, it, such profound loss came into my life. Like, I didn't know what to say. I was afraid to trigger. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, you're probably not going to trigger somebody unless you say something horrible or you say nothing at all. So I just, you know, I also want hope that people maybe who are just curious about grief will read the book as well, because I think some of that is in there too. But I think, you know, it's so interesting you say that because my, my father died in 1992 and he was 57 and my husband, who, you know, very well, and he was my boyfriend at the time and he, he didn't, he didn't know what to do. Yeah. He, he didn't understand like, you know, don't touch me. My father may be watching. I mean, he didn't understand some of the craziest things, you know, yeah. that come out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's definitely a process. And like you said, it's a different process for everybody. So I, I think it's, you know, interesting that it can be a very helpful resource, like you said, for people who, you know, maybe you're married to somebody or living with somebody or have a friend, you know, that's had loss and you just don't know how to deal with them. It gives them a sense, a window into what that, you know, person is going through. Because when when somebody dies, you know, and, and you know this, it, it, it's like you, st the world stops, mm -hmm. yeah. but it's, it's going on around you, but you can't relate to it going on around you. Yeah. I remember my son died and I was in therapy one-on-one -on -one, and I said to the woman, I'm so angry when I'm walking down the street, I'm suffering and I'm so angry. And she said, everybody has suffering of some level. They're just not wearing it on their sleeve. She goes, but if you were to stop, she goes, it's all different. Like somebody may have lost a job. Somebody, you know, may have financial trouble. Maybe somebody just found out they have cancer. You know, maybe maybe somebody's, uh, you know, long-term relationship broke up, you know, and of course, as people, you know, that, you know, they, they've they lost. Um, uh, Will Schwalbe says, New York Times bestselling author of The End of Your Life Book Club. It's powerful. It's an indispensable book. And he said, unlike any book on grief that I've previously found, and you know this because you're an author second time around. I know this because I've dabbled in the idea of becoming an author. That's one of the things. I mean, you really, you know, you can't write a book or get a deal to write a book unless it's something different um, than than what is what is out there. Um, 
ha- have you had any stories, whether in the book or people maybe who didn't make the cut that you interviewed or people that have read the book and spoken to you that that maybe stayed with you or touched that you want to share upon? I mean, I interviewed a lot of people because I wrote a proposal first um, because, you, you know, for nonfiction, unless you're like Prince Harry, um, you have to write a proposal. I doubt he did. Um, <laughs> but So I interviewed many more people for the proposal that I just couldn't fit all those voices in. Um, so there were just there's so many stories that that will stay with me and, and people still, you know, I'm still having book events um, and people will share, you know, really tough things. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of that. Um, there is one woman that stuck with me that I was flew to New York a couple weeks ago for a book event. And the woman next to me, we were saying like, why are you going to New York? Told her about the book event and the book and, and it's about grief. And she goes, I will not be reading that. And, and I knew where she was going. I was not insulted because I, because I was like, okay, I think I know where this is going. Um, and she said, I have a lot of grief in my life and I tuck it down and I bottled it up and I don't want to look at it. And I was like, okay, that's like, I'm not insulted. Like my book's not, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not here to be like, this will save you. But I felt like that will stay with me because I'm going to think about that woman for a long time and wonder if she's ever going to let that, you know, her grief come out or look at her grief. Cause, um, I just felt bad for her. You know, it, it must've been pretty traumatic. We have less than a minute left. What do you want to leave our listeners and viewers with and where can they get this wonderful book? You can get it anywhere. Um, anywhere books are sold. Tomorrow's Indie Bookstore Day. So it'd be awesome if you could get it from your favorite local indie bookstore. Um, but yeah, you can get it, you know, online or at bookstores, but Indie Bookstore Day. And, you know, I guess I hope that this comforts people who are either newly grieving or it's been several years. You know, I did add a lot of levity because I feel like that helps And, you know, I hope anybody that's just curious about grief or wants to understand it maybe a little bit more. Thank you, Dina. You know, I love you. Dina Gaxman, a Pulitzer Center grantee, frequent contributor to the New York Times, Black Texas Monthly, and more. New York Times bestselling ghostwriter. Her first book, Brokenomics, is awesome. Get it, 50 Ways to Live the Dream on a Dime. But this book is something, the second one, so relatable. So sorry for your loss, so I learned to live with grief and other grave concerns. Check out her website, Dina Gaxman, right? Dot com. On Twitter, follow her there at Dina Gackman. 